When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Three, two, one. But I'm working out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Welcome back, everybody, episode Hall 7, Jim Calhoun, and in the podcast, and Shipping America, Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. October 16, 2023, people, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody enjoyed just another insane Saturday of college football. We got so much to react to. This might be one of those Monday shows where we go on for like four hours. I don't know what I'm going to stop talking because we have so much to discuss Here's what you need to know about today's show. We'll open, obviously, the thriller in Seattle. Incredible game, incredible finish, an incredible narrative coming out. Did Dan Lanning cost his team that game by going it for it on fourth down late? We'll discuss that. From there, a quick break. USC's debacle at Notre Dame. What does it mean for this season for USC? But maybe more importantly, what does it mean for the bigger picture of this program? They're headed to the Big Ten. I don't think they're ready. From there, we'll talk about Texas A&M's meltdown. We'll talk about Colorado's meltdown on Friday night. Mark Stoops, he talked the talk earlier this week, did not back it up. We're going to discuss that as well. Arizona gets a mega win, so there is so much to break down from this Saturday, and we're about to get into it all. Before we get started, quick reminder, uh, DraftKings Sportsbook has partnered with the Aaron Torres pod. I am so fired up. It's around the, the legal the launch of legal sports betting in the state of Kentucky, which took place just a few weeks ago. And here's the awesome news. DraftKings has an incredible offer for first-time customers of DraftKings Sportsbook. This is all you got to do. This is what you need to know. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. First-time customers bet $5 on any game. Get $200 in bonus bets instantly when you use the promo code TORRES. That's TORRES, T-O-R-R-E-S. It really is that simple. Download the app, bet $5 on any game, and first-time customers get $200 in bonus bets instantly when you use the code TORS. With that said, there is no more time to waste, so let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, bluntly, you know where I'm going to start. Top 10 matchup, Seattle-Washington, Oregon and Washington. In my opinion, coming in, they were the two best teams in the Pac-12, and they delivered. What was great about this game, before we get to the nuance of everything, you know, sometimes we get these big games, and they just don't live up to the hype, right? Um, Sometimes we get these big games, and one team doesn't deliver, one team's overrated. Sometimes we get games like Texas A&M, Tennessee, where neither team is good, but somebody's got to win. That was not the case in Seattle, Washington, as this was back and forth, 
And I thought both of these programs asserted themselves well. I think even with the loss, Oregon, to me, looks like a playoff-type team. Washington, to me, has the inside track to a Pac-12 championship game appearance. And we'll discuss, because I think there's a good chance this was not the first time that we see these teams play this year. With that said, let's get to what was ultimately the play. I don't want to say it's the play that decided the game, but it's certainly the play that everybody is talking about coming out of this game. And it was a decision by Oregon coach Dan Lanning late in the fourth quarter to go for it on fourth down. A little bit of context. And again, uh, you know, listen, if you want to play by play, minute by minute, moment by moment, there are other places you can go to. But this game, I don't want to say it came down to this play, but this was the defining play of the game. So for people who were not in front of a TV, just a quick, quick, quick 30 second context. But again, back and forth game. Awesome. Late in the game. Oregon has the ball with under two minutes to go. Washington is out of timeouts, but Washington gets the stop. Oregon has a fourth down on the Washington 47, and Oregon has a decision to make with under two minutes to go. Do we punt the ball back to Washington with about a minute 47 left? I think it was a minute 30 somewhere in there. And do we make them go the length of the field or do we go for it on fourth down right now? They go for it on fourth down. Washington is out of timeouts. Oregon can kneel, win the game, and steal a top 10 victory in Seattle. Well, Dan Lanning decides to go for it, and Oregon doesn't get it. And unfortunately for Dan Lanning, it blew up in his face because two plays, 53 yards later, Washington goes the length of the field, scores a touchdown to go up 36-33. They obviously kick the extra point. And then Oregon does get the ball back with over a minute to go. They get themselves in field goal range. But unfortunately, as you've all seen on highlights by now, if you were not watching live, Oregon misses what would have been the game-tying field goal to go to overtime. And so after the game, I watched Dan Lanning's press conference. It was the first question he was asked. And to Dan Lanning's credit, he, he said, I'm the reason we lost. Blame me, whatever. It is worth noting, by the way, that Oregon also went for it on fourth down in the red zone at the end of the first half rather than kicking a field goal. And I know it's easy to say, well, if they kick the field goal, we end up with a tie game and you're kicking to win the game. But ultimately, I think the conversation that most people are having is, did Dan Lanning make the right decision? Did Dan Lanning make the right decision going forward on fourth down? Or did he cost his team a win by not punting? Old school, you know, old school kind of thought processes, punt, make the the uh, the other team go the length of the field. Kind of the new school analytics say, go for it on fourth down. And uh, it's the question that everybody's asking. Did Dan Lanning make the right decision to go for it? Let me say this. You guys and girls know I'm not an analytics guy. You know that I think some of this new age stuff has overtaken common sense and I don't love it. But what I am here to tell you definitively right now, this second is this. Dan Lanning absolutely, positively, a thousand percent certainly made the right decision in that moment to go for it on fourth down. Just because it didn't work out, just because they didn't get the first down, and just because they lost the game doesn't make it the wrong decision. In life, you can make the wrong decision and not get the results that you want, and Dan Lanning absolutely, in my opinion, made the right decision. And let me explain why, because I was thinking about this afterward. I talked about it a little bit on my Saturday uh, college football show on Fox Sports Radio. When you think about the circumstances, and again, give me 30 seconds to reset it. You are on the road, okay? You're playing a top 10 team, and you're up by four 
with under two minutes to go. Washington has no timeouts. So if you get that first down, the game is over. If you punt it, you're punting it back to a team with a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback that essentially you have not been able to stop all night. I would argue nobody's been able to stop in the last two years. And so part of it is nuance. Part of it is context. You're not playing um, army that can't throw the football. You're not playing a, a team that 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 struggles to pass the ball. You're playing literally the best quarterback maybe in college football in this particular season. So there's that context. But to me, and I think this was part of Dan Lanning's process, okay, and part of his thought process. In my opinion, Oregon choosing to go for it on fourth down, okay? In essence, there are four things that can happen when you choose to go for it on fourth down, and three of them are actually in your favor. Here are the four things that can happen. One, you can convert the fourth down, game over, you win. Two, you can not convert the fourth down. Washington gets the football back. They don't score. You win. Now, keep in mind, again, Washington had to go the length of the field and score a touchdown. Field goal doesn't win it. Field goal doesn't tie it. You have to score a touchdown. So Washington would have to go the length. Even if you don't get it, they have to score a touchdown. So one, you get it, game's over. Two, you give it to them. They don't get it, game's over. Three, you give it to them, but they score with enough time left on the clock where you can potentially go back and either tie it or win it. And then, of course, the fourth scenario is the the the, the death scenario, the, the worst scenario possible, where they get the ball back and they score and you don't have enough time to realistically get a shot at the end zone. And so I bring it up because all of those variables are in play. I also think it's worth noting by going for it, you're sort of inherently saying your defense, you don't know if your defense can stop this explosive offense, to which I would say, if that's the case, then in theory, it's sort of baked in that you could get the ball, that they, that if you don't get it, they could score and you could get the ball back with enough time. And so I think Dan Lanning in that moment thought about all those different scenarios. And he said, even if they score, I think with this offense, we'll have enough time to at least get in field goal range. So you have three, four scenarios. Three of them are sort of in your favor, and it worked out in your favor, even though you gave up a touchdown. You got the ball back. You got enough time. You got in field goal range, and the kick didn't go through. As I said, you can make the right decision and get the result that you don't want. That is part of life, but I don't blame Dan Lanning at all. And so with that, let's talk bigger picture about these two programs, because this was an incredible game. And kind of what I said after the Red River shootout last week, I think and I hope we see these two teams again in the Pac-12 championship game. Now, it's going to be a little bit different. The Pac-12 is deeper and tougher than the Big 12. But first of all, let's look at these two teams and let's start with Washington. One, listen, I owe Washington like a huge apology. Like if you don't think Washington is going to be in where Aaron was wrong on Friday, you're out of your mind. Because this team to me, I thought it was Michael Penix passed this, that, the other thing. Michael Penix is unbelievable, okay? But let's give credit to those receivers. Roma Desne, Jalen Polk, both went over 100 yards. But the offensive line against the best pass rush they've seen held up. And that defense is probably better than I gave them credit for as well. And so when I look at Washington, I sit there and say, that's not a perfect team. But there's no perfect teams in college football this year. Do I think they can run the table? Do I think they can win the Pac-12? Do I think they can get to the playoff? Do I think they can win playoff games? I absolutely do. Now, from the Oregon perspective, it's a little bit more challenging, kind of like Texas. Their margin for error is gone. But how can you watch that game from the Oregon perspective and not say they can run the table? They can still win the Pac-12. 
you understand that they had over 100 more yards of total offense on the road against Washington. You understand that they had the ball with under two minutes to go and a chance to win in the most hostile road environment that they'll play in all year, as hostile as anyone will play in in college football all season. They had a chance to go the length of the field and win that game. And so I'm sorry, but I'm not going to sit here and, 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 and throw a funeral for Oregon because they couldn't get the three yards. And then, oh, by the way, because they missed a field goal that would have tied the game to force overtime. And so you look at Oregon, again, the schedule is not easy. Like Washington, they still have four teams on the schedule that were ranked in the top 25 this past week, starting with Washington State at home this week. From there, they have at USC, they have uh, Utah at Utah, which is, or they have USC at home, excuse me. They have at Utah, which is a place they lost two years ago with a chance to go to the college football playoff. And also they have Oregon State at home to end the year. So that is not an easy schedule. But Oregon can absolutely run the table. And if they get back to the Pac-12 championship game, I'm just going to say it right now. If both these teams are healthy, I think Oregon's probably the favorite in that game to win that game and potentially go to the playoff. And so it's. I know there's no moral victories for Oregon in this scenario. But at the same time, we have to call a spade a spade. It was an incredible game. Somebody had to lose. But do I think that both these teams could end up in Vegas for the Pac-12 championship game? I do. And do I believe that both these teams can make the college football playoff and win games there? I do. By the way, I didn't mention it. I think it goes without saying. Michael Penix, (laughs) man, I owe you an apology, my guy. This is a guy that's been through so much. A guy that um, so many injuries, they talked about on the broadcast, two shoulder injuries, two knee injuries, didn't work out in Indiana, revives his career at Washington. That is your Heisman Trophy favorite. We'll see how the, the whole thing plays out. But you look at the rest of college football. Caleb Williams ain't winning that thing again. Shador Sanders ain't winning that thing. Uh, Jaden Daniels at LSU is incredible. He ain't winning that thing. Um, So, you know, maybe a Dylan Gabriel, maybe somebody else. Michael Penix is your favorite. Congrats to the Washington Huskies on an incredible win. You deserved it, and I was dead wrong on you. All right, so what I want to do, take a quick break. When we come back, team that I was not dead wrong on. Been telling you for three weeks, USC isn't good. Well, they got boat raced in South Bend, and I think it speaks to some bigger issues in this program. Take a quick break. Be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to switch gears. Uh, and I do want to talk about the game that I think most of us agree was probably the other high-profile game this weekend. That was USC going to Notre Dame. And it was interesting because throughout the week, Notre Dame opened up as a slight favorite. Uh, the the line didn't really move. And, and it's a little bit surprising, right? US, uh, USC is coming in undefeated. Notre Dame has two losses in their last three games. And so you kind of sat there and said, USC is the underdog in this game. All the money, you know, the, the line hasn't moved. What's going on? Well, I picked Notre Dame this week. But what I can definitively tell you is this. I did not expect this game to go the way that it actually did. 
Because while Oregon-Washington was game of the year status, this was a beatdown of epic proportions as Notre Dame beats USC 48-20. to And while I'd love to sit here and talk about Notre Dame and what does it mean, and it's this incredible moment in time, the story coming out of this game is unquestionably USC, where they go from here. And frankly, I think the bigger question is like, where is this program right now? Is they're about eight months away from being a member of the Big Ten? And what's interesting about this game, listen, I am far from the only one that has had questions about USC. And it was funny because when I was watching the game, I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to talk about this on, on Monday's Aaron Torres pod. But then it kept getting worse and it kept getting worse. And, and, and I bring it up because I think we all thought a loss was coming for USC at one point, maybe two, maybe three. But I think we all kind of envisioned the same thing happening, right? For months, for two years, since the day Lincoln Riley got to USC and brought Caleb Williams with him. We said, okay, the offense is going to be fine, but it's that defense. Do you trust the defense? Can the defense get the job done in games that matter? They couldn't last year. They couldn't, you know, early in the year, they've struggled against the Arizona States and the Colorados and the whomevers. It actually wasn't the defense that let USC down on Saturday night. You know who let USC down on Saturday night? It was Caleb Williams, who played by far the worst game of his college career, 199 yards passing, three interceptions. He came into this game with one interception the entire season. And so this game just did not go like we expected at all. And I will say, I don't think Caleb Williams was great for most of the Arizona game last week. He was incredible late, but I don't think anybody saw this coming. And I certainly don't think people thought this loss, if it happened, was going to happen in this manner. Caleb Williams with three interceptions. USC with five turnovers overall, and I think what's most important, the USC defense was fine. You know, USC's defense only gave up 251 yards of total offense, but it was because they kept getting put in bad spot after bad spot after bad spot by the offense, turning the ball over, that the score looked so lopsided. Again, doing my radio show on Saturday night, my buddy Arnie Spadier said, I don't know if I've ever seen a game where somebody has 251 yards of total offense and 48 points, only that's exactly what happened. USC also gave up a kickoff return for a touchdown. This was a a complete debacle. And so again, it's bad news. And like, I don't think we have to beat around the bush. I think this very much calls into question USC for this season, but let's call a spade a spade. I think it calls USC into question beyond this season as well. As far as this season is concerned, listen, we should have all seen this coming. As I said, This is really, in my opinion, about the fourth straight game where USC has not looked right. Three weeks ago, they played a very bad Arizona State team on the road, and it was closer than a 42-28 final score indicated. They get the win. Caleb Williams is Superman. Next week, they play at Colorado, give up 41 points to the Colorado Buffaloes, survive that one. And then last week, they fall down 17-0 to Arizona before rallying to win in double overtime. So they haven't been playing well. And here's the scary part. This is actually the easy part of the schedule they just got through. The back half of the schedule, I've been talking about this since July and August. The back, Have you seen what USC has ahead? Now, we just talked about it with Oregon and Washington because they're in the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is deep and talented, and seemingly all these big games are coming at the end of the year. But here's what USC has over the next couple weeks as they wrap the regular season. Utah at home next week. Now, Utah's not great this year. Utah beat USC twice last year, punked them. And the one thing we know about Utah, they're physical, they're tough, they're mean, they're going to beat you up. 
And that's exactly what USC's kryptonite is. They play USC at the Coliseum next week. We'll see how that one goes. Even if USC survives, they have Cal in a couple weeks. But those final three games, you know what USC's final three games are this season? Washington at home. We know how good Washington is. At Oregon, good luck with that one. If you couldn't handle the cold and rain in South Bend in October, I don't think it's going to be any better in Eugene in November. And then you have a UCLA team at home to wrap the regular season. I think UCLA is pretty good. I actually think USC or UCLA matches up well with USC because, again, they're physical, they're tough, they play real defense, although it's the offense at UCLA which is struggling right now. And so you look at this USC team. I don't see the scenario where in a year where you have maybe the greatest quarterback that Lincoln Riley is ever going to have. Because, listen, I know I can be critical of Caleb Williams on Saturday, but we've talked about this before, is that I know Lincoln Riley always has a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback under his watch. But Caleb Williams, I think we can all agree, is a different level at his best than Baker Mayfield was, than Kyler Murray was, than Jalen Hurts was, whatever. And so you have this incredible quarterback. But with the way that the offensive line produced on Saturday, with the way that this defense has been for most of the year, they're not going through the rest of this season with just this one loss. I don't see them beating Washington. I don't see them certainly winning at Oregon. I don't think UCLA or or Utah at home is going to be easy either. And so all of a sudden, you don't get to the Pac-12 championship game. You don't get to, uh, you get to nine and three with Caleb Williams. How does that fare for this program going forward? Because this is the part that I don't think anybody's talking about. It's one thing to be a little bit soft and a little bit this and a little bit that. It's another thing to do it as you are going into the Big Ten. And I was thinking about this on Saturday. Listen. We know it's kind of a different brand of football. I'm not here to talk Iowa and whatever. But at the same time, one thing you can't question, Midwest, tough, physical line of scrimmage league. Even the teams that are explosive, what is the criticism of Ohio State? Are they tough enough in the biggest games? Penn State, tough, physical, mean. Michigan, tough, physical, mean. And you look at this current iteration of USC. Let me ask you a question. Just based on what we know, And we don't know who's going to be quarterback for them next year. We think it'll be five-star Malachi Nelson. And we don't know some of these other programs, where they're at, et cetera. But let's say things largely stay status quo. Let's say Jim Harbaugh doesn't leave for the NFL. Let's say Ryan Day is at Ohio State as we expect him to be. Where is USC, the USC that we saw on Saturday and really the last four weeks, going into the Big Ten next year? Because they ain't beating Michigan. They ain't beating Ohio State. I don't think they're in better shape than Penn State. I don't think they're in better shape than Oregon. I question if they're even in better shape than UCLA and Washington. Now, Washington, we'll see what happens post-Michael Penix. UCLA, it's kind of a weird, they were so offensive, but now they're defensive. What is their identity? Can they keep it up? But I look at this US, I don't think USC is like a team that is just going to go into the Pac-12 or go into the Big Ten and just steamroll everybody because they got Lincoln Riley and a really good quarterback. And so I will tell you, I, I do think we're about to see over the next six to eight months, I think the honeymoon for Lincoln Riley is going to end fast. And it doesn't mean he's on that. Like, I think college football fans get this part twisted sometimes. Doesn't mean he's on the hot seat. Doesn't mean he's getting like, that's not what that means. But what it means is I can say this as somebody that lives in LA. In LA, USC fans, I know that USC hasn't been very good for, for a long time pre-Lincoln Riley. And I think USC fans are grateful that he chose USC and he came to USC and he left Oklahoma and everything that happened two years ago now. 
But USC fans expect to compete at the highest levels. And even if they have a downturn, it's like whatever, being a Florida fan or being a Bama fan or being an LSU fan, being an Ohio State fan. Even if you have one bad year, two bad years, it's like, no, 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 no. We're going to get it right, and we're going to compete for national championships. That is the standard here. We win national championships. We produce Heisman Trophy caliber players, and we compete at the highest level of the sport. And right now, I think USC is a really fun sideshow. I don't think they're ready to compete at the highest levels of the sport. I know there's a 12-team playoff next year, but I don't think they're ready to go into um, you know Georgia in round one and then beat them and then go go beat um, you know Michigan in round two. Like, this program just feels like it's at kind of a weird crossroads. And it feels weird, again, year two for Lincoln Riley. But this is the transfer portal era. You can fix things fast. And he told us that the defense was fixed. Now, again, the defense wasn't the problem on Saturday, but we will see. Because we have seen USC uh, this year. That defense hasn't been great. And Caleb Williams has bailed them out most of the last two years. And what happens if you don't get a plus-plus quarterback most nights? Well, it got ugly on Saturday, and I don't think it's going to get any better if that defense doesn't improve. And so, again, I think it's a little bit of a crossroads moment. I think it's a little bit of a honeymoon is over for for, for Lincoln Riley. Not to say he's going to lose his job. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is you're entering a really tough league with really good competition, and USC fans aren't going to, be, aren't going to just accept that because it's a new league, because it's only year three, whatever, that you're the fourth, fifth, sixth best team which is where I think they're trending now. So it'll be interesting to follow. Um, And by the way, like I am being a little bit negative at the same time, USC could bounce back. I think they take care of business this week against Utah, just because I think Utah is really struggling without cam rising, but that schedule was only getting tougher. And again, I think you talk about a scenario where the Lincoln Riley honeymoon ends quickly. See what happens to USC. What happens at USC if they finish nine and three this year, There's going to be a lot of people unhappy. They're going to demand change. They're going to demand a different defensive coordinator, different O-line coach, whatever it is. You can't keep going on like what we saw on Saturday. I just want to do take a quick break. When I come back, speaking of you can't go on like Saturday. We got to talk A&M. A&M's a debacle. A&M's a debacle. I've tried to defend it. I've tried to figure it out. I've tried to think that it's no. It falls on one man with the big contract. We know who it is. Quick break. Talk Texas A&M, Tennessee next. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Do want to switch gears to yet another high-profile college football game that came on Saturday. And it's interesting because I remember back on Friday's show, I said point blank, I thought that the team that had the most at stake on Saturday was actually Texas a Now, Oregon-Washington, bigger game, right? But either of those teams can lose. They can still win the Pac-12, make the college football playoff. USC, I know it was a debacle, but they can still win the Pac-12, go to the college football playoff. Texas A&M was going to go down one of two very unique divergent roads with the game against Tennessee on Saturday. They were either going to win, and then he could sit there and say, well, wait a second, they just won on the road at Tennessee against a ranked team. Um, The Alabama thing, maybe Alabama's just really good and getting better. You're still in position to win 10 games. You're still in position to even potentially win the SEC West if things get weird with Alabama. If you lose, though, then it means that you're 4-3. and It means you have two SEC losses. You're not winning the West. You're on a two-game losing streak going into the bye. And realistically, you still have LSU on the road and Ole Miss on the road, and you're probably looking at 7-5 and 
and that simply isn't good enough given the talent on this roster. Well, Saturday the game happened in Knoxville, and it was largely not very good. And we'll talk about Tennessee in a minute, but it was an ugly, sloppy, wild, weird, bad game. And Texas A&M lost 20-13 to in what can only be described as a debacle for Texas A&M. And so I know there were external forces. We're going to get into some of them that led to the loss. It wasn't all on the head coach. But I don't know how you can look at this program right now at this moment in time and say that they're in the right place. And again, it's not all on Jimbo Fisher. But man, oh man, oh man, as a guy who has defended him for years, it is so obvious that he is the problem, not the solution to what's going on at Texas A&M. And before we get into the, the A&M aspect of things, let me say a couple of things. One, I want to give credit to Tennessee, okay? Because I know we're going to have Tennessee fans that watch this or listen to this and say, oh, Torres, you never give us credit for anything. And like, I get it. And what I would say, I think Josh Heupel is doing one of the best coaching jobs in college football. Because ultimately, listen, I, I'm not a scheme guy. I haven't sat in all those meetings, okay? But part of coaching, and we've talked about this a lot with Nick Saban this year, it's playing to strengths and weaknesses of your team and your specific personnel in any given year. Well, Josh Heupel, a year ago, had a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback in Hendon Hooker. Should have been in New York. I'm still mad about that. And he threw the ball all over the field. The offense was incredible. This year, you're not getting the same production at quarterback, and they have turned into a run and defense-based team. We talked about it on Friday's show. T- Tennessee had the, I believe, the number one rush offense in the SEC, and I think the number two total defense or something like that. I can't remember all the details, but they ran the ball really effectively on Saturday. The defense is really good, and this is going to win them a lot of games. Now, the schedule doesn't get easier. They got Bama this week. They got Georgia in a couple weeks. But I think Josh Heupel is doing as good a job as anybody in college football, given the personnel that he has. And it's also worth noting from the AM perspective, they're dealing with a ton of injuries. And I know that everybody has injuries, but you lose your starting quarterback, Connor Wigman, two, three weeks ago. And Max Johnson just clearly isn't the guy. Not a disrespect. It's not anything, whatever. But it's just obvious if you watch that team that like he's just not good enough to win high level SEC games. Beyond that, you lose two of, I would argue, not just the best defensive players on your roster, but two of the best players in maybe college football in Edger and Cooper and Walter Nolan. As I record, we don't know the status, so I don't want to speculate too much. You hope they're okay, and I certainly, I'm not a doctor, but you, you hope they're okay, but you don't know, okay? So all of this is true. Tennessee might just be better than we think. Heupel's doing a great job. And Texas A&M has certainly dealt with adversity. But at a certain point, it can't always be excuses and it can't always be the reason that you lose big games that matter and the thing is this isn't a one weekend thing this isn't even a one year thing this is now year six and this is who Jimbo Fisher's program is win games don't win enough of the big ones and the ones that matter listen don't don't let me skew your opinion because I still think there are a couple people that'll sit there and say well there's injuries it's not Jimbo don't blame him whatever let me just read you some straight facts about Jimbo okay this is now year six these stats are incredible okay Texas A&M under Jimbo Fisher 43 and 24 doesn't sound that bad 25 and 20 now in the SEC barely above 500 at SEC play since the start of last year, nine and ten overall, four and eight in twelve SEC games. 
So in the last 19 games, nine and 10, four and eight. And here are the craziest stats, the stats that blew me away, the stats that I did not know until I was coming into this weekend. Did you know that Texas A&M has now lost eight straight road games? Eight straight road games dating back to the 2021 season. It's been over two calendar years since they won a game in a true road environment. And this stat really blew me away. Since Jimbo Fisher took over, Texas A&M is 0-9 in SEC road games against ranked teams. So if you want to sit there and say, yeah, he's getting paid a lot of money, $9 million. Not everybody's going to win the national championship. Okay, I get it. But at the same time, you can't win one big game away from College Station. 0-9 against ranked teams over his entire tenure in true road games. 0-8, 8 straight losses in the SEC, 8 straight road games in losses, 8 straight road losses. I'm tripping over my words because it's so unbelievable. And so when I look at this whole thing, it's it's impossible at this point to say it's anything other than Jimbo, and I'm the guy that's largely defended Jimbo. Give him time. Get him an offensive coordinator. Let the, the recruits get older. Like at some point, it can't always be about excuses. And even with the injuries this year, it can't always be about, well, next year when we get healthy. At some point, you have to acknowledge who you are. And this just isn't a very good program right now. And when I think about this whole situation with Texas A&M, there's a couple things that are especially disappointing, okay? One, I actually saw this from The Athletic, and I want to give credit to Sam Khan, who covers, um, I think, Texas college football. You know, he's in Texas, so he does A&M, UT, TCU, whatever. He said this, Jimbo Fisher coaches in the market. I think this is the most frustrating part, right? Is that Jimbo Fisher right now is coaching kind of in the market. He's coaching almost as if he has the less talented team and, you know, it's field position and it's defense and it's, it's, it's hope for good stuff, right? He's coaching like he's at Iowa. He's coaching like he's at Iowa State. He is not coaching like he has one of the most talented rosters in college football. Remember, two weeks ago against Alabama, had the chance, get some points before halftime, let the clock run out, didn't use timeouts, did the same thing on Saturday against Tennessee. On the road, it's clear Tennessee does not trust their quarterback. Stop the clock, get the ball back, try and get points. Instead, lets the clock run out, and here's the crazy part. Last two weeks, three total points in the second half against Bama and against Tennessee. And oh, by the way, there was also the punt last week. We talked about that at the time. If you want to defend the punt, oh, it was the right decision. Okay. And so it goes back to what we talked about with Dan Lanning earlier. Like it's one thing if you trust your guys, if you believe in them, if you let them go out and it just doesn't work. It's yet another when you don't trust them and you don't put them in position to succeed. You have talent everywhere. I know there's injuries. But where is Evan Stewart? Where is Noah? Tom- like, why are you not getting the like, like, how does this happen? How does it happen? I heard Gary Danielson say this, right? Anaya Smith on Saturday, maybe their best wide receiver, one catch for 20 yards. And Brad Nessler said to him, he said, well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, maybe Tennessee's done a good job of taking Anaya Smith out of this game. And you know what Brad, uh, Gary Danielson said? He said, I watched Stanford go to the same wide receiver nine straight times against Colorado. If the player's good enough, you put the ball in his hands and you figure it out. So I don't know if it's a Bobby Petrino thing. I don't know if Jimbo Fisher's taken back play calling, but whatever it is, You're in position. You got the dudes to do it. Go let them do it. And then beyond that, you know what's especially frustrating? It's what we talked about last week. Again, not an X's and O's guy. 
I'm not Bill Belichick on the whiteboard, okay? But even a a dude like me can see when a team is well coached and when they're not. Watch these games. Go back to last week, the red zone. Remember, they were down two scores, needed two scores. Uh, they, they botched the clock, take a timeout, come out of a timeout to kick a field goal just to kick it off. And then, oh, by the way, they can kick it deep. They have enough time, and they end up going on sides, okay? So you have last week. This week, a crucial third down, a third down that you need a stop to get Tennessee off the field and get the ball back. Guys are out of position. They're yelling. They're screaming. They're running the wrong directions. What are we doing? You can see it. You All you have to do is watch the games. They're not well coached, and they're not being put in position to win. And so with AM, I don't know what the solution is because, look, I, I, we could talk about it, but that contract, he's not getting fired this year. And so I don't know what you do. You, you tried to fix the offense with Petrino. I'm not going to blame Petrino because I've seen what a Bobby Petrino offense looks like, and he really does just put the ball in guys' hands and let them make plays, whether it's Lamar Jackson, whether it's the deep passing game at Arkansas, whatever it is, Petrino lets his guys make plays. And so I don't know, like, I guess my question is, what can you do to get any excitement going forward with this program. I guess you could finish out strong this year, but why? what is there to think that you're you're going to go outscore LSU and Baton Rouge? They just put up 48 against Al- Auburn on Saturday night. That ain't happening. You're not beating Ole Miss. Lane Kiffin loves rubbing Jimbo Fisher's face in the dirt. And so it's just so frustrating because I don't know what the answer is. You brought, you brought in Bobby Petrino. You tried to fix the offense. It's not fixed. And so, listen, I, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. I mean, the only other thing that I can really say is I was just dead wrong on Jimbo, right? Is that, you know, I was the guy that have, has tried to defend him for years and we'll get out of here on this, but like, you know, I've tried to defend the guy for years and and I'll say like, really thought, you know, give him time, let the players get older, get him in offensive court. It's the same thing over and over. And so for years, people have said, well, he rode Jameis Winston to a national title. It's hard not to say it at that point, right? Because remember, he was at Florida State before Clemson really got going. So he had the best player in college football in Jameis Winston, by far the most talent on his team in the conference. And it is worth noting, and you know it's interesting, I was at the game. When Florida State beat Auburn, it was the last year of the BCS. So he didn't have to go through uh, a Georgia and a Michigan to win the national championship or a Michigan and an Alabama or whatever. He got one game, won a national championship, and he'll forever be a national championship winning head coach. But he is not that guy. Texas A&M hasn't gotten him. And it's hard for me to have excitement about this program. I hope everybody gets healthy. By the way, I hope nobody really significant hits the portal because there's still so much talent in this program. Good thing is you get a bye, you get South Carolina. There are wins on the schedule. But it's hard to see the scenario where this team comes anything close to meeting expectations with LSU and Ole Miss still on the schedule. And there's nobody to blame but Jimbo Fisher. All right, this is what we're going to do. Take a quick break. Come back. Final segment. We're going to talk some Colorado from Friday night. How about some Mark Stoops? Some other stuff from across a busy Saturday in college football. Quick, quick break. Be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. And I do want to go ahead and wrap uh, with a couple other uh, just games and results from over the course of the weekend. Another really fun Saturday in college football. So blessed to have this sport in our lives. Love everything about it. And it was a great, great, great weekend. So let's get to some of the other results. I want to start 
actually not on Saturday, but on Friday night, as we talk, you know where I'm going. I'm not talking Memphis Tulane, baby. I'm talking, of course, about Stanford at Colorado. Colorado's an 11 and 11 and a half point favorite. And I'll be honest. So, so for people who don't know, I live on the West Coast. So it was a little bit of a late start, but seven o'clock local time kickoff. And I think even those of you on the East Coast, you're kind of hoping, okay, Colorado gets up by a big amount. Uh, they put the game away. I can get to bed early. And I'm thinking here, living on the West Coast, I'm tired. It's Friday. I got a big Saturday. Eh, maybe they'll get up by a big, big margin. I could be asleep by 930 Pacific time. Well, it appeared to be that way for a while as Colorado jumped out to a 29 to nothing lead to start the game. You feel good. Should I turn it off? Should I go to bed? And then all of a sudden, Stanford just starts chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. And all of a sudden, it's getting closer. And all of a sudden, it's getting closer. And all of a sudden, dumb stuff is starting to happen. And all of a sudden, you got yourself a game that is going to overtime where Stanford ends up winning 43 to 42. And so credit to Stanford, but the story is obviously Colorado. I want to talk about the ramifications, Coach Prime, who's to blame, all that good stuff. But let me start by saying this. This is a very tough loss for Colorado. I've said from the beginning, the goal should be get to six and six, get to a bowl game, get those extra practices, and then recruit your butt off in the offseason. Okay. And so I bring it up because you win this game. You're sitting at five and two. You go into the bye. You get a week off. You feel good. All that. Now, all of a sudden, you're four and three. You lose this game. And the back half of the schedule remains really tough. UCLA, who you play out of the bye, is ranked. Washington State isn't, but they're very good. Oregon State is very good. Utah is very good. And you got to win two more games to get bowl eligible, and it is simply not going to be easy. By the way, you still play Arizona, who just beat uh, uh, Washington State, which we'll get into in a minute. But I bring it up because obviously it's a crushing loss, and I think when something happens, especially at Colorado, biggest story in the sport probably, the big question, oh, blame Coach Prime. And, and we all know what the narrative is, right? Oh, you in the media, you guys in the media, girls in the media, you spend too much time talking about them. Most overrated program in college football. Well, they're not the most overrated pl- program in college football. They were projected to win three games. They've won four, so they've exceeded expectations. But coming out of that game, I think the question becomes, you blow a 29 to nothing lead, blame Coach Prime. And to me, it's actually the exact opposite. I watched that game. I consumed that game. I thought about that game. I think there's a lot of blame to go around, but I'm not sure much of it goes to Coach Prime because ultimately, while he is the head coach, if you look and you listen, he's been telling you for a while that something like this could happen. So let me explain. First of all, in terms of blowing a 29 nothing lead, It is an across-the-board deal, and yes, some of it falls on the head coach. But Coach Prime, as we know, is what they call a CEO head coach. He delegates the offense and the defense to the coordinators. No different than Jim Harbaugh, no different than Dabo Sweeney, et cetera, et cetera. Why do I bring it up? I thought it was a colossal disaster from both coordinators, okay? Sean Lewis, offensive coordinator, did not have a great game a few weeks ago against USC late in that game with the clock management. They put up 41 points, whatever. I bring it up because just think about that Colorado offense on Saturday, okay? I'm just going to read you the drive charts from the first half against Stanford on Friday night. Here is how how Colorado's uh, possessions went in the first half. Touchdown, 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 missed field goal. That was the entire first half. Four touchdowns and a missed field goal, okay? So you can't tell me that they weren't moving the ball. And then all of a sudden in the second half, they can't do anything. Here are the drive charts from uh, from Colorado in the second half. Remember, t- 
touchdown, 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 miss miss field goal. That was the first half. Here is the second half for Colorado. Turnover on downs, punt on on five plays, punt on three plays, turnover on downs, touchdown, punt before overtime. So that's three punts, two two three and outs, and overall the offense just collapsed. And I'm not saying it's one person. I'm not saying it's whatever. But when you put up 29 points in the first half and you can only muster seven in the second half, part of that credit Stanford's defense. I'm not trying to discredit them. But part of it is play calling was not there. You're moving the ball. You got weapons. You got dudes. Xavier Weaver is getting open on every deep ball. Why do you stop throwing the ball to him? I do not understand. Beyond that, the defense is an abomination. Okay, And it's not all on one guy. But Charles Kelly is the defensive coordinator. This defense is not good. And I'm sorry, I understand that it's a lot of new players in the portal and you have guys like Travis Hunter hurt. This defense should not be this bad, okay? You look across the board at the players that they have. And even if you acknowledge that there's just not as much depth and as much talent as most of the teams they play, there is as much depth and there is as much talent as Stanford, especially on the other side of the ball. It's not just, you know, Travis Hunter, but the other corner, Jaquez Robinson, played at Alabama, Levante Bentley, defensive uh, or, or linebacker, played at Clemson. They got a couple guys from Florida State. Jordan Dominic was dominant at Arkansas last year. So they shouldn't be this bad. And here was the other thing. On Friday night, they were simply poorly coached, okay? You can't, listen, I, I'm not a scheme guy. I'm not X's and O's expert. But when they ran the same slant play over and over and over and over and over again, that's on the defensive coordinator for not adjusting. Now, should Coach Prime get on the headset? Absolutely. But that's why the defensive coordinators paid a lot of money to figure it, the you-know-what, out to get it figured out. Finally, I think some of this is on the players. Listen, 17 penalties in that game. And I know, again, blame the coach, head coach. It's all on the head coach. Okay, I get it. But listen to what Coach Prime has said time and time and time again over the last couple weeks. If you listen to his messaging, one thing I respect about him, like all the great coaches, and I believe Coach Prime will get there, He just tells you how it is 24 hours a day. Nick Saban, you know when he's happy, you know when he's sad, you know when he's angry, you know when he's disappointed. Hugh Freeze, I keep saying it. Hugh Freeze tells you exactly how he feels. He told you in his Monday press conference, we don't have a chance to stop LSU on Saturday. Well, guess what happened? LSU put up 48 points, okay? Well, Coach Prime has been saying for weeks, guys, you're not locked in. Focus. Before the Oregon game, it was make sure you have your brothers back by your side. It doesn't go well. Credits Oregon after that game. After that, the Arizona State game, what was the conversation? Well, first of all, the USC game, he was proud, obviously, because they battled back. The Arizona State game, what did he say? We played like hot garbage. We need to be better. He set the standard, and the players did not meet it. And then after this game, I had no problem with his messaging. Did you hear what he said after this game? He said, I got a bunch of guys in that locker room that like football. I need guys that love football because right now these guys are not dedicating themselves the way that they need to to operate at the highest level and so you can blame the coach but some of this is on the guys in the locker room first of all 17 penalties is unacceptable and don't tell me it's the coach at the end of the day guys have to be accountable for their own actions on the field whether it's false starts late hits offsides whatever be accountable and don't tell me it's all on the coach because guess what you know who was one of the most penalized teams in college football last year It was Alabama with Will Anderson, the number three overall pick. Dallas Turner, who's a top 10 pick this year. 
They could not stop making mistakes. And Nick Saban said all year, I, I don't know what to do. We've tried every single thing and nothing's working. And that's clearly where Coach Prime is in this situation. And so I get that it's easy to place the blame on him, but some of it is on the players too. I just think watching from a distance, a lot of these guys have bought into the, we're social media stars, we're Instagram stars, we're football stars, and they haven't accomplished anything on the field yet, anything close to to, to, to what you know they believe. I don't even know how to say it, okay? I would say the best way that I can probably put it. I saw LeVar Arrington works at Fox Sports Radio, former you know superstar linebacker, NFL, Penn State, whatever. I saw that he said this. I haven't listened to the whole segment. But he said something to the effect of, there's a lot of guys on the Colorado roster that think because they play for Deion Sanders that they have accomplished what Deion Sanders has. And that's what I see from this Colorado team. I see all the hype and the excitement and the Instagram posts and the posing and the, you know, walking out with the t-shirts and the locker and the this and the that. Are, are the guys putting in the work though? So to me, Coach Prime has been telling you exactly how this is and exactly how it's going and what needs to be fixed. And these guys aren't listening. Good news is you got to buy rally. The schedule is not easy, but it's not impossible either. UCLA right now is really struggling to move the football. Um, their defense is great, but they're struggling to move the football. They can be beaten at the Rose Bowl, and I guarantee you in L.A. there's going to be a lot of Colorado fans, a lot of Coach Prime fans in that game. Washington State's kind of the opposite. They're moving the ball, but they can't stop anybody right now. Arizona playing well. Oregon State's playing well. Utah, I think, is you know it's, it's a tough matchup. But I'm disappointed, but I don't place this one on Coach Prime. He's been telling us for weeks – Guys, you need to lock in. You need to focus. I don't know what else he can do. I don't know what else he can do, but that was a debacle. And I think there's a lot of blame to go around. And I don't think it's just the head football coach. Quickly, let's rip through some of the other results of the weekend. Um, First of all, credit Arizona, okay? Credit Arizona. I just mentioned Arizona. Week ago against uh, USC. We know what happened against USC. Up 17-0. Can't close it out. Have a million chances to win. They don't do it. What did I tell you on this show? I said, give Arizona time. They're going to figure it out. Could have won at Mississippi State. Held Washington to its lowest point total of the year. Could have beat USC. Well, on Saturday, they go up to Washington State and take care of business against the Cougars. My Cougars. Love those Cougars. Final score, 44-6. to First of all, a couple things. One, shout out to my guy, Jed Fish, okay? By the way, AaronTorresOnline.com merchandise. We got our gone fishing shirts, baby. They're selling like hotcakes. Jed Fish's face. He's awesome. And I have believed in this program because if you've been paying attention, they have been evolving and growing and getting better. This was a team, like I said, they should have beaten Mississippi State on the road. I watched it. They should have beaten USC last week. I watched it. Washington, they played them tougher than anybody up until Oregon this week. Beyond that, I give Jed Fish credit, okay? So a few weeks ago, his starting quarterback, Jaden Delora, gets hurt. He puts in my boy Noah Fafita a few weeks ago, and clearly the offense is just, it just operates smoother. Um, Noah Fafita isn't perfect, but he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't beat himself. And Jetfish kind of took a lot of heat this week because he wouldn't commit to Fafita. He wouldn't commit to, um, you know, to to playing him over, over the backup or, or, or over the starter. And he ended up playing Fafita, and he was awesome on Saturday. 34 of 43 passing, 342 yards as Arizona gets the win. 
On top of that, uh, Speedy Luke, great running back, one touchdown, 71 yards. Uh, the passing game was on fire. The run game was on fire. Three touchdowns from Jonah Coleman. Just a great, great, great effort overall. Arizona's a program on the rise. I talked about this last week, but I think it's worth noting. I think Arizona, they've recruited very well. And beyond that, um, they got a lot of young talent on that roster. They're going to the Big 12 next year. And I think they're one of the few Pac-12 teams that is actually built to compete in their next conference. I think Stanford and Cal are in real trouble in the ACC. That's where they're playing. Um, I think that, you know, I just mentioned USC. I think they're going to struggle in the Big 10. I don't think they're built for it right now. Same with UCLA, et cetera. I think Arizona can have success immediately in the Big 12. Big 12 is not going to have Texas, not going to have Oklahoma. I like where this Arizona team is going. Credit to them. They get the win at Washington State. Uh, A couple other results. North Carolina, credit to them. Destroyed Miami at home. Final score was not reflective on how close the uh, final score was not reflective on how one-sided the game was. North Carolina takes care of business 41 to 31. Uh, Tez Walker, the kid that everybody was freaking out about because he wasn't eligible. He gets eligible. And now you can see why Mac Brown was freaking the, you know, what out about it. Okay. He was phenomenal again for a second straight game, nine catches, 132 yards, three touchdowns. Yet we get why this kid was so, why, why Mac Brown pushed so hard for him to be eligible. I'll say this North Carolina quietly, 6-0 and in the A- overall, 3-0 and in the ACC. Remember, top two teams in the ACC go to the ACC championship game. They don't play Florida State. They do have at Clemson late in the year and Duke at home. But I think if you're talking about teams that are in the driver's seat to potentially make the ACC championship game, North Carolina is probably right up there with Florida State. A couple other results, Alabama gets the win. You know, it was ugly. Arkansas, I thought, battled. Now, Arkansas's... You know, look, they've lost a lot of close games this year by three at LSU, by seven at Ole Miss, by seven at Alabama. And so I guess the question becomes, you know, are they getting better or are they just a team that loses a lot of close games? I understand the disappointment from Arkansas fans um, as this team isn't getting better. Alabama, everybody wants to freak out. What does it mean? I don't really see an issue. They have Tennessee this week before the bye. Lastly. Let me say this, and I'm, I'm adjusting myself in my seat for this final topic. Let's talk a little Kentucky and Mark Stoops, okay? Because it was a busy week for Mark Stoops and the University of Kentucky. Mark Stoops inadvertently made a national headline when he said that basically, why did you lose to Georgia? Blame NIL. They buy really good players, and we don't. Or basically, we need to start buying more. You want to win at Georgia's level, contribute to NIL. And so I talked about it a lot during the week. And I'm going to talk about it right now. But when you make comments like that, whether it's intended to be a major story or not, you got to deliver. Instead, it's the exact opposite as they got destroyed at home by Missouri final score 38 to 21. First of all, credit to Missouri. I think they're a pretty good football team. Probably should have beaten LSU two weeks ago. They don't get the win, but they're now sitting at six and one overall and 2-1 and one in the SEC, just an absolute dominant win uh, as Missouri now heads into their bye and a very interesting back half of the schedule um, uh, where Missouri now, excuse me, do they go into their bye? They, 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 do, they have South Carolina before the bye, and then they got at Georgia, Tennessee, Florida. So we'll figure out just how good they are on the back end, and then they close with Arkansas. Credit to them. They're good. I've made fun of Eli Drinkwitz. He's got a good football team. They're playing really well. 
to me though, the story is is Kentucky. And what I would say is this week when those headlines came out and the narrative got started, I was very critical of Mark Stoops. And I saw other people in the media, oh, Torres is overreacting. Or, oh, if you think these quotes are a big deal, you're fooling yourself. And let, let, me, let me say this. A couple things. One, I don't think it's a big deal from the Georgia perspective. I don't think Georgia cared. Kirby Smart brushed him off. Couldn't have cared less. I don't think it changed how they operate in any way, shape, or form. But from the Kentucky perspective, it was a big deal because that was the part that people didn't talk about. Everybody wanted to talk about, well, what does it mean for Georgia, da, 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 this and that. What did it mean for the guys in that locker room if you're a Kentucky football player? Imagine being a Kentucky football player. You lose to the number one team in the country. You get embarrassed. And your coach comes out and basically says, we need more NIL because those 85 guys aren't good enough. I'm sure that not everybody in that locker room was upset. But I guarantee you some were. I guarantee some probably took it the wrong way or not the way that Mark Stoops was intended. Beyond that, and I know I got a lot of pushback for this. I guarantee you. I know how this works. I've been covering college sports forever. If you don't think there were a group of upset parents, now was it a set of one, a set of five? I don't know. But if you don't think there was a couple phone calls that were made this week, basically saying, hey, Mark Stoops, you don't think my son's good enough? We're going to pack our bags and go somewhere else. Or... We're not getting paid anything in NIL, and you're you want to bring in other players when my son's doing his. So the point I'm trying to make, there were people that were upset. You cannot deny, and you cannot deny that it created a distraction. And so it's a frustrating moment because the distraction was created by the head coach. And let me take it a step further, too. Mark Stoops is a guy that I think I have on the national scale paid more attention to and given given more acknowledgement than most other people. I think what Mark Stoops has done there is absolutely incredible. We've talked about it time and time and time again. Credit to Mark Stoops. Built something at Kentucky that I don't think anybody thought was possible when he got there in 2013. But at the same time, he is a guy that when things go well, Mr. Kentucky, Mr. This, Mr. That, BBN, da 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 this and that. But when things go bad, man, it just feels like it's excuses and it's this and it's that and it's whatever. And the one thing about Kentucky, I know oh, Kentucky's a basketball school and you know we had the whole Calipari versus Stoops thing last summer. But one thing I can promise you, on a national scale, I've been to a lot of these SEC campuses. Kentucky, the money that they have put into football over the last decade, I don't know if it's second to none, but the facilities they have, the, the pool that they have, the fact that every time, so by the way, Stoops makes almost $9 million a year. The fact that every time he needs raises to keep his assistance, most notably the big dog Vince Marrow, like he gets what he wants. And if you know the background at Kentucky, Mitch Barnhart, the AD, is a guy with a football background that understands the, the importance of football. But Mark Stoops is a guy that has gotten everything that he wants. By the way, that was part of the John Calipari stuff a year ago. Coach Cal was like, dude, we've all sacrificed a lot to see football succeed. Now I need my cut of the pie to get this basketball facility. And you can debate, was Cal right? Was Cal wrong? Was Cal this? Was Cal that? But what can't be denied is Mark Stoops has gotten what he's needed. And so when you get what you need time and time and time again, people don't want to hear excuses, one. But beyond that, they want to see results on the field against the teams you're supposed to compete with. And it's one thing to go to Georgia and lose to the number one team in the country. By the way, Georgia didn't look great on Saturday again either against Vanderbilt. But it's one thing to go to Georgia and beat the number one, to play the number one team in the country and get beat badly. It's another thing against Missouri at home 
to lose the, in the manner that they did. And I know Missouri's good and Missouri fans get mad because, oh, you know, our NIL is this and we're good and we're blah. I get it. But some of it falls on Mark Stoops too. And if you're going to say the things that you say, you got to back it up on Saturdays. You got to back it up against the teams you should be backing it up against, starting with Missouri. Kentucky gets a bye. They will close out the back half of their schedule starting in a couple weeks from now. I'll tell you, it doesn't get much easier, okay? Because from Kentucky's perspective, they do get a cross-division game against Alabama, although at least that game is at home. Uh, they also get Tennessee at home, a team they've struggled with at Mississippi State, a place that they've struggled at, South Carolina, and Louisville. I know Louisville lost on Saturday, but Louisville is obviously a good football team. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. I have gone on long enough. I am exhausted, and it's Sunday night, and I'm ready for a cold beverage. If you're not subscribed to the Air Tour Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. At Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Aaron Torres Pod on TikTok. Yes, TikTok, baby. And also make sure you're subscribed on YouTube where, guess what? We're about to close in on 27,000 subscribers thanks to your support. It's time for me to get out of here. It is time to go, and it is time to call it a day. Thank you again to everyone for your support. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick. You F it. Unblock me, bro. I'll be back on Wednesday. New episode, Aaron Torres.